millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So what's the connection between the East End of London and the family that used to own the football pools? And how did one of London's most celebrated bare-knuckle boxers end up in a mass grave in Essex? It's Saturday the 30th of March 2013. If you're celebrating, I hope you're having a great Easter weekend. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. A radical transformation. Very radical transformation. Morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a gallery. place called the Kittle Hoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. What the hell is that? <laughs> the man is tired of London. He's tired of so London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's, it's very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. And you sneak through the city, what, immersing yourself in the sight sounds. And for song, the Jewish community who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced it is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. Uh, people frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. No, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Well, I am staring down the barrel of a fake tree. I realise it's uh, in the next room here at the Whitechapel Art Gallery and I'm here with Clive Bettington. He is the chairman of the Jewish East End Celebration Society. Hi, Clive. Hello. Now, the name of the society gives away what it does, but we should say something about where we are, uh, first of all. Perhaps if we talk about the East End more generally and uh, perhaps the, the Jewish influence on the East End and then zoom right into the building we're in, which, of course, has heavy Jewish resonance. Right, certainly. We're in this part of London, which has a very strong Jewish history. Um, it's ha- also had waves of immigrants over, over many centuries. Uh, the Jews, in fact, arrived in 1657 in this area, um, in, in fairly small numbers. Uh, but the area was very Jewish from then onwards. And, um, but the largest number arrived in 1881. Some 200,000 Jews arrived in 1881, and this area became solidly Jewish. There had been Irish immigrants, there had been Huguenot immigrants, but the Jews are the biggest uh, um, immigrant community ever to arrive in this part of London. It was poverty-stricken. They were poverty-stricken, uh, and they had family contacts to this extent, and uh, uh, it became the, the pre- lingua franca of this area was Yiddish. In fact, they spoke a language, and they were deeply uh, resented by the existing Anglo-Jewish community who saw them as a potential embarrassment and uh, a burden on the community. Oh, uh, let me make sure I've understood you correctly. Did you say that the, the English Jewish community yes. was against the, the immigration? Yes, certainly. Because they, they, the existing Anglo-Jewish community were well established. They sent their children to posh schools. They were, you know, they were wealthy. Uh, and the last thing they wanted were a lot of poverty-stricken Jews arriving from Eastern Europe, speaking a language they didn't understand, uh, and looking foreign. Uh, and um, it, 
it was thought that they should never have been allowed in the first place. And a lot, and a lot of the Jewish uh, societies actually paid for some of them to go back to Eastern Europe, actually. I'm presuming this is because the, uh, the, the established Jewish population had probably had to work quite hard to overcome what is, let's face it, in this country, centuries after century of uh, discrimination. Yes, exactly. I mean, the whole of the 19th century was the struggle for emancipation. We had the first Jewish Lord Mayor of London in 1855. We had the first uh, um, active... Uh, Jewish member of, of, of the House of Commons in 1858, Baron Lionel Rothschild, and the first Jewish period was only 1882 as Lord Rothschild. Uh, so they had struggled f- and established themselves. They'd become extremely wealthy, and suddenly everything was jeopardized by the arrival of these people you know, enorm- in enormous numbers. And uh, they thought they would, you know, uh, there was no, of course, there's no welfare state in those days. They would have to pay great large sums of money to, to maintain these people. Now, I don't know what the record-keeping situation was back then, but is it possible to quantify or to give a sort of percentage proportion of uh, Jewish folk, new Jewish arrivals in this area? Well, it's very, again, it's very difficult, because in those days, in the census, you don't have to put your religion down. But it's been estimated that in 1930s, there were 200 to 250,000 Jews in this area. That's professor, according to Professor Skadelsky, uh, who himself is, is, is Jewish. Um, and, and, but the figure might have been lower, but it's, it's very difficult because names have been anglicized, so you can't apply the so-called Cohen test to find out how many Jews there were. But they think that was, and was very heavily populated. Uh, there were some 30 people to a house, actually. Uh, overcrowded, dire poverty. Uh, but out of that incredible poverty, it produced great artists, architects, uh, writers, uh, politicians, great boxers, uh, great gangsters as well. <laughs> came, came from the Jewish East End. They were very notorious gangsters in the area. We will come to gangsters in just a moment. We can't let that one pass. Uh, we passed over the rag trade, though, of course, which was uh, no, phenomenal. Exactly. I mean, they really basically, they, they, they started the great second-hand clothes dealing in, in London. Uh, and in Houndsditch, you had this massive second-hand clothes market. Um, and the poor people were able to buy you know, better clothes for the first time, which they could clean up and wear. And you didn't have to have specially uh, bespoke clothing made for you anymore. You could buy, buy second-hand clothing. You know? And, of course, um, they set up a lot of clothing business, uh, the, the, these new Jewish immigrants. And, um, and that's now been taken over by the Bangladeshi. They now run a cl- the clothing industry in the East End. So it's amazing how one immigrant group has taken over the other one's uh, sort of trade. Um, but again, they were very resourceful, and, and um, within you know, a generation or so, a lot of them had moved out to, to, to Essex or to the north, so-called northwest frontier, up in as far as Bushy they are now, but up into Golders Green, Edgware. Um, and of course, the thing that precipitated this was uh, the Second World War. I mean, uh, Stepney, as, as this area was known then, uh, was the most bombed borough of, 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 in the whole of England, actually. So the, a lot of the housing stock was destroyed. Uh, and new housing was for, found in these new suburbs in Essex or in Golders Green, Edgware, Hendon, those areas. Now, all of this is a matter of historical fact, but your name of your society is, is the Celebration Society. Why the celebration? What's inspired this history to be celebrated? Well, you know, the thing that uh, I'm not Jewish, nor am I from the East End, <laughs> so I'm not seen as that suitable, but I, I have now taken it to my heart. Uh, and I was, when I discovered the East End, uh, I found it a really fascinating area. Emmanuel Lit- Litvinov, one of the great writers of the East End, wrote, wrote his biography and he called it A Journey to a Small Planet, which exactly it was. It was a planet all on its own with this 
different language group, a different, very different religion, uh, and the people lived entirely on their own little planet. And I found it fascinating, these, these people. But the, the existing Jewish establishment uh, don't seem to appreciate this. They feel that they've left the poverty behind them, and they don't see any reason why, why it should be written about, why the existing buildings should be saved. Um, because they think Jews are successful and, and, and they see it only as see only the poverty. They don't understand it was a highly creative area as well. Like these people came over from East, Eastern Europe and produced great band leaders. Almost all the great band leaders in England came, came, came from, from Eastern European heritage. People like Joe Loss and Geraldo, uh, Stanley Black, all, all these people were, were East Enders. It also produced great businessmen, people like uh, Lawrence Graff, the great diamond billionaire, uh, Sir Charles Claw, the shoe manufacturer, uh, Lord Rain. Uh, they all came from the, from the East End. So you're still fighting that same battle, the new immigrants versus the established Jewish population. What about these individuals that you mentioned, though? I, I understand the problems between those two groups but what about when somebody made it who came from a more deprived background did they pretend that they had never heard of the poor jewish east end yes certainly we have that problem actually families who went on to become get titles and that's some of them want to forget all about the east end because you know they did i mean there's a man called colonel seifert who was a great architect in the 1970s he, he did some rather ugly buildings in London. Um, and to the end of his day, he never mentioned the East End. And his daughter said, why not? He said, you know, every time we moved, we moved even to, to even worse accommodation. And I didn't want to mention it at all. But, but again, there are some people who are proud of it. Uh, the writer Bernard Copps, who grew up in the East End, uh, and who's a lot, a lot of his, his poetry and his plays are set in the East End, uh, is still very proud. He doesn't live here anymore, but he's still very proud of his East End connections. So some of these people, you're outing them as East Enders. <laughs> Yes, I know, certainly. Well, I know they were. It was the, very, the East End was the cradle of Anglo-Jewish com- community. Uh, and most Jews come from this area. Uh, even those who, who, who don't really want to know about us, they come from this area, actually. Let's, uh, let's dig into some of these individuals that you're mentioning. And actually, I remember reading about a boxer called Mendoza who sounded like a fantastic character. Yes, certainly. I and mean, that's just one of the many great boxers this area produced. Uh, Daniel Mendoza uh, was born in this area just, just off uh, Petticoat Lane. Um, and he, he invented scientific boxing. He was known as the father of scientific boxing. He was quite small. He was, he was only five foot six and weighed 11 stone, but he could take on men much larger than himself, mainly because of his, his method of scientific boxing. Um, and he became the, the most famous British boxer, really, of all times. Uh, he came to a sticky end. He took to drinking quite heavily, and uh, he was always in debt towards the end of his life. But um, D- difficult, to be, difficult to be quite so scientific if you're half cut. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. So, certainly that's true what's happened to a lot of them. But he had a whole host of these. Uh, Jewish boxers, pe- people like uh, Dad, Dutch Sam Elias, Isaac Beton, uh, A.B. Belasco, they were all his contemporaries, actually. They all became great boxers. It was all bare-knuckle boxing in those days. But, but in the 20th century, of course, we had, we had um, world champions, people like uh, Ted Kidd-Lewis, Jack Kidd-Berg, uh, great British champions like Harry Misler, uh, Harry Mason, um, whole strings, endless full Lolosky, they were all very famous boxers actually, uh, and it produced, this, produced them in this area, and again it was the established Anglo jury who, who made them take up boxing, they founded these boxing clubs in the East End they used, they used the terrible phrase, they had to iron out the ghetto bend, a lot of these immigrants suffered from uh, deficiency diseases like rickets um, and they thought by taking up boxing, this manly sport, a 
it could straighten up their physiques and give them manly physiques. So it couldn't be an embarrassment any longer. I believe this is something we're facing at the moment with uh, new arrivals from, I think, particularly parts of Asia and the Indian subcontinent and, and places like that where uh, certain illnesses are, are re-establishing themselves in the country as they come across with uh, less affluent immigrants. Yes, certainly, of course, you know, uh, I mean, tuberculosis has again become a very big factor uh, in Tower Hamlets and the adjoining boroughs. But again, uh, among the Jews, tuberculosis, particularly among the, the uh, people who worked in these sweatshops and the cobblers and that, uh, had a very high rate of, of, of tuberculosis actually. It was, it was very, very common. Again, the whole, the whole idea of the anglo Jewish community was to make sure these, these diseases were conquered and uh, they gave uh, the London Hospital particularly was, was a private institution in those days and it was financed by the great Jewish millionaires including Lord Rothschild. They gave large sums of money to, to the London Hospital that kosher wards and everything to treat them actually. Um, well, that's interesting. Yeah, what, what about the level of segregation? And, and you talked about boxing clubs, for example. Were there specifically Jewish boxing clubs? Were they kept apart in some way from other uh, ethnic groups? Yes, certainly. I mean, they, they, they were. I mean, p- people deny it now, but uh, the East End was seen as a ghetto, not, not in a European sense. There were no walls or anything. But there was certainly a mental ghetto. And uh, many Jews uh, never left the East End. Going west of the Allgate Pump was seen as a great, great adventure. So, uh, well, let me understand. Was that about the Jewish people staying within a self-defined ghetto, or about other people staying outside of that perimeter? No, I think it was the Jews staying with inside an ill-defined uh, ghetto. They, they, they didn't speak English. Very few of them actually learned English. It was only after the Second World War that they were compelled to speak English because they moved out of the area. Uh, but it's still very much the lingua franca until about 1940, actually. Uh, but very few people speak Yiddish now. But in those days, they did, actually. So you'll speak, you learn, read about people like Mark Gertler, the painter, Rosenberg, and their parents didn't speak a word of English and they never mixed in the English community. And of course, it has a similarity with some members of the Bangladeshi community today, and a lot of the women who lead these very isolated lives, actually. And they, they, they're not really equipped to go and mix with the, with the, with the population at large as well. And they, so they've got a kind of ghetto going on there as well. Well, Emmanuel Litvinov is a very interesting figure in terms of his writings and his, his sort of persona. He, in a way, embodies a particular outlook and a particular time in the East End. I've had the privilege of meeting him, actually, before he, he passed. Could we say something about him? Yes, certainly. Emmanuel Litvinov was an amazing man. He died two years ago at the age of 96. Unfortunately, towards the end of his life, he had Alzheimer's. And again, like many of the East European East End writers, he... Um, is largely forgotten about now, but he, he, he wrote an enormous number of novels. Uh, he was very much obsessed with the Holocaust. He wrote uh, uh, poems for survivors about the Holocaust. Um, and, of course, I think he wrote the greatest biography uh, about the, uh, of anyone from the Jewish East End, A Journey Through a Small Planet, where he, he describes the, his poverty uh, in the East End. He grew up in a, a tenement house uh, just off Cheshire Street, uh, and he made a conscious decision really to quit the East End and really renounce his Jewish heritage because he felt, he felt ashamed of, of that, that sort of Yiddish background. Not, not just the area, then the whole the caboodle. Whole, his whole Yiddish background, he felt, he felt ashamed about it and he decided to become a British playwright and not a, a Jewish playwright. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. But he, he, he's, you know, he wrote a great deal about the Holocaust. He didn't renounce his Jewish heritage, etc. It was just the, the poverty, I think, it, it, it wears you down after a while. You, you grew up among the poverty. I mean, 
Bernard Copps himself also grew up in tremendous poverty, actually, uh, which blighted his life to a great extent. And, and suddenly now I think that he's having a really happy time. He's, got, he's quite comfortably off and he's got children all surrounding him and he's, he's writing new plays all the time, novels, poetry. And we do as much as, you know, as possible to make sure that he's, he's, he's listened to and heard all the time. Uh, when I met Litvinov, it was in a synagogue just up the road here, which sort of suggested to me that he didn't manage entirely to shake off the, the, the area. No, I don't think he'd ever been inside a synagogue. He was actually a communist in his earlier life. <laughs> and I think, the, 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 referring to the time we launched his, um, his biography in, in paperback, A Journey Through a Small Planet. This, this was at the, the paperback launch of his yeah, that's biography. Exactly. Yeah. My organization did that launch, actually. And he turned up and... Um, it's quite odd because he, I said to him, which we wanted to look at his life uh, as well. And we said, now, which Yiddish songs do you want us to play for you as your birthday? He said, Yiddish? I don't know any Yiddish. Red flag instead. <laughs> and then we played some Yiddish songs for him and he, he started singing along in Yiddish. Actually, When you got him on his own, he, he, he was extremely lucid and uh, very articulate. He, he sounded very much like an upper-class Englishman. He developed this, this English accent. Um, Litvinov brings us into the realm of poetry and, of course, Isaac Rosenberg is commemorated on a plaque just outside the, the building we're in. Let's let's talk about the building first, and then about Rosenberg. Yeah, certainly, we're in what was the the Whitechapel Library. It's all now part of the Whitechapel Art Gallery, uh, and both institutions were founded by a formidable battle axe called Dame Henrietta Barnett, who used to go to the rich and force them to hand over money to her to build her various institutions. And this is the Whitechapel Library. Uh, it was founded specifically for the Jews. Actually, they had an enormous collection of of Judaica in this library. All the librarians were Jewish and 90% of the, uh, the uh, users were Jewish actually. Uh, and it became known as the University of the Ghetto. And a lot of these Jewish intellectuals in this area, people like Jacob Bronowski, uh, Arnold Wesker, uh, would come and use this library. And Isaac Rosenberg um, uh, was actually taught to learn poetry, write poetry in, in this library. It's quite amazing when you think of it nowadays. Um, so was, was he an autodidact, or did somebody uh, mentor him? Yes, certainly. A man called Maury Dana, who was a librarian, uh, you s- said to him, I'll teach you how to write poetry. And they sat down together. And uh, uh, because, I mean, he, he's now recognized as probably the greatest poet of the First World, British poet of the First World War. Uh, and he was so different from the other poets of the First World War, British poets of the First World War. He came from a non-English-speaking background. His parents never learned to, to speak English at all. Uh, he grew up in intense poverty. He had a very indifferent education, unlike a lot of the, most of the public school uh, poets of the First World War. Um, and he was very sickly. He was very short. He, was, he had to fight in the Bantam, so-called Bantam regiments of the First World War. He was short. And I think the evidence was that he had incipient tuberculosis. So he had this very ill and he, he was deeply depressed his parents hated one another um, and he overcame all these terrible disabilities and his poetry is quite extraordinary actually and we're in the process now of putting up a statue to him which unfortunately won't be in the East End it'll be in Birkbeck College where he studied for a while and it's next to the Slade School of Art where he studied to be a, an artist so even in uh, commemoration he's, somebody somewhere along the line is denying the East End element well we, we, we try to have a, a site in the East End but we we couldn't find a secure site. And the last thing we want to do is put up a statue which might be vandalised or stolen, which is happening to a lot of statues in the East End. Uh, so we found a site in, in Birkbeck College where it's going to have 24-hour security. Um, and it will enliven a rather 
boring square, Torrington Square, which has become a sort of glass nightmare. So, so the statue will enliven it. And we want it unveiled on the 25th of November 2014, his birthday. Um, he was born in Bristol in 1890, uh, died in the Western Front in 1918, and his body was only really found eight years afterwards. They, they think it was his body. So he's buried in a grave marked Isaac Rosenberg with a Star of David on it, but there's some doubt as to whether it's even his body, actually. And, of course, he wasn't an officer, unlike a lot of other poets of the First no, World he, War. he served in the Bantam regiments and went through the lines. So, so some of the terrible descriptions he gives of, of the suffering are his own experiences of, of, the, of the, the fighting, actually. And he's got a terrible scene where he describes how uh, wheels from a, from a gun carriage go, go over a soldier's head and crush out his brains, actually. It, it is quite desperately sad, actually. But it, he's his personal experience. We have a piece of his poetry here I think yeah, certainly uh, when we put up his statue it's not going to be he's, going to be, he's not going to have a military uniform and we thought, we thought that might be too provocative people might think it's related to the, to the Afghan war or the Iraq war so he's going to be dressed in, in a, in a, in a, in a greatcoat which he normally wore and an alpine hat which he, wore, he was very fond of and he's going to be reading a book of poetry but around the base of the uh, statue will be the, the following words from his great poem The Break of Day in the Trenches the darkness crumbles away into the same old druid time as ever. Only a live thing leaps my hand, a queer sardonic rat. As I pull the parapet's poppy to stick behind my ear, droll rat, they would shoot you if they knew your cosmopolitan sympathies. Now you have touched this English hand, you'll do the same to a German soon. No doubt it'll be your pleasure to cross the sleeping green. Between it seems your inwardly grin as you pass. Strong eyes, fine limbs, haughty athletes, less chance than you for life. Bonds to the whims of murder, sprawled in the bowels of the earth, the torn fields of France. What do you see in our eyes at the shrieking iron flame hurled through the still heavens? What quaver, what heart aghast? Poppies whose roots are in men's veins drop and are ever dropping, but mine in my ear is safe, just a little white with the dust. Is a character who's really been largely forgotten by Britain in, in general and by the Anglo-Jewish community in particular. And, and so in raising the money for the statue, we also helped to raise his profile, trying to educate people as to, to his poetry, which is really quite abstract in comparison to, to those of, of Rupert Brooke and, and, and Wilfred Owen. But some people now think he's the greatest poet of the First World War. Uh, Paul Fussell, the American who wrote the great book The Great War and Modern Memory described uh, The Break of Day in the Trenches as the greatest poem of the First World War actually. It, you know, it's, it's, His poetry to a large extent is quite abstract Actually, it's not quite as obvious as, as Wilfred Owens but it's, once you get to read it uh, and you understand his life it, 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 it makes sense Yes, it is rather less constructed and I, I think it works no, it better in that, in that example for that it is quite complex, and even great, we've had great actors reading it. Uh, but the person who reads his best is, is Isaac Rosenberg's nephew, Bernard Winnick. He's 85 now. He's the chairman of the Rosenberg Literary Trust, actually. And he'll be reading it on... Uh, we're having an event here on the 7th of April, and B- Bernard Winnick will be reading it then. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on a 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet or desktop or burned to CD and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. Let's talk about London more broadly and uh, I'm wondering whether you have counterparts in other parts 
of London, or are you the only celebration society for the Jewish community? Well, there are a lot of Jewish cultural uh, groups in, in London, actually. There's the Jewish Music Institute, the Jewish Museum, um, the Jewish Cultural Center. Uh, but we're the only ones who really do the Jewish East End, actually. Um, you're, you're not short of uh, people doing tours and all that stuff. We've had Rachel Kolsky on the show uh, not so long ago, for example. There's, there's a lot yeah, of interest. A lot of people do tours, but um, uh, I think mine are in greater detail, actually, than theirs, actually. <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to show off it is because, I, you know, I, I, I tend to approach things in a much more academic way. Uh, and I think sometimes people think mine are too academic. Uh, but what I'm desperate is for people to know the facts. So I don't do just an East End walk. I do things like I look at the rise of Zionism in the East End. I look at the literary figures, the artistic figures. I do the, a special walk on box to the East End. Uh, and none of the other guys do it in, as specifically as that, actually. Uh, we haven't talked yet about the gangster element. Oh, right, certainly, yes, I know. That's, that's an element that the, the Jewish community like to forget about, actually. Uh, I'm not surprised, but... Um, uh, and the most notorious of the gangsters in the city. And we, I can imagine, you know, this was an area of great poverty. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit like the Wild West, and people had to, uh, had, to, had, to, had to make money out of it. And the whole range of these extraordinary characters, and the most notorious was a man called Jack Spot. His real name was Jack Comachero, but he's called Spot because he had a spot on the side of his neck. And whenever there's trouble, he was always on the spot. And, uh, and he was quite a ruthless man. He ran protection rackets. Yes, he ran these protection rackets... Um, he ran illegal gambling houses. This was all in about the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. And he was severely injured in, in a fight with another gangster in, in Soho, actually, when a, when a Jewish uh, storekeeper in Soho, a woman called Mrs. Hyams, hit him across the head with a, with a, with a, with a sugar scoop, which cracked open his skull, and he went into decline. I thought it was, was interesting. As, but by then, he had, he had lost his power. But um, he's remembered as, 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 as one of the most notorious uh, but another two brothers, another two notorious gangsters, uh, and the Jewish community won't recognize them as Jewish, were the Cray brothers, actually. They were of Jewish descent. They weren't wholly Jewish, but they were of Jewish descent, actually. And they were very proud of their Jewish background. Their, their grandfather's known as Jewy Cray or Crazy Cray, actually. He slept with a crowbar under his pillow, and they were very fond of their Jewish background. They would, uh, Reg, Reggie Cray would often listen to Thought for the Day when, when Rabbi Grin, the great survivor of Auschwitz, would talk, and he was deeply impressed. And he, he was a close friend of Sophie Tucker, the great American singer who came to, to, to London quite often. And he, he was a very close friend of two, two boxers, Jack Kidberg and Ted Kid Lewis. Again, boxing is very much involved with gangsterism, actually. Um, some of the boxing promoters, I won't mention some uh, name, uh, were involved in, in fixing matches and illegal gambling as well. I mean, but again, boxing has always had a link with gangsterism, actually. Um, uh, and a whole range of extraordinary characters. A man called Ike Bukhada in about 1910 used to dress as a cowboy, you know, larger-than-life character, and walk down Brick Lane uh, with two guns in his holster. In, and they were live guns, actually. He, was quite, he eventually went to prison. <laughs> I keep a hide. Extraordinary character, the Dutch Jew. And, um, it, it, it's quite amazing, actually. But, you know, there's, um, as I said, there's great links between boxing and, uh, and the gangster profession, actually. Gangster family, somebody like Jack Spot, would he have been part of a, an organization that was made up of Jewish folk or a family of Jewish criminals? No, he, he, the only, he had his dear old mother who, every time he came out of prison, the only person who loved him in the end was his mother, actually. She'd welcome him home and probably make some soup for him and all that sort of thing. But he, he, his main uh, lackeys, his henchmen, were the boys he grew up with in, in, um, 
in Fieldgate Street in Romford Street, where, where he lived. Uh, there was a one called uh, Moshi Blueballs Cohen, actually. It was one of his, his henchmen, but they'd grown up as children together, actually. And uh, Jack Spot was the, the sort of head of them. And, of course, the Cray brothers had their whole establishment. Uh, they're not only two brothers, they had their drivers and their various henchmen as well, actually. But, you know, again, you, they, they, they tried to make a living. It's, 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 it was difficult in those days. The poverty was dire. I mean, you know, it wasn't just sort of failure to, to, to afford to design a clothing. It was, you know, where would the next meal come from? These gigantic families, you know, up to 20 children sometimes, actually. Yeah, we, we really haven't got a clue in the East End now what it was like. A very short span of time ago. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, up to... One of our members of my society in the 1980s lived in Stepney Green, and their flat was infested with rats and lice, actually. They lived in this intense poverty. You know, in, 19, in the 1980s, about 30 years ago, they were living in, in, this, in this terrible poverty. But it, 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 was, it was incredible. There were no jobs. They had to desperately try and get some jobs. Um, Bernard Copps's father never had a job. His mother had to try and take in washing. And all she could afford every day was, 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 was a cabbage a day, actually. Um, to keep on he had to go to the, um, uh, the Jewish Board of Guardians for his clothing and of course being such a short man they always gave him long trousers and he, he remembers walking around all the time with his trousers dragging in the dust actually and they used to have soup kitchens established by the rich families and then uh, and that was their only sustenance for the day they'd go to the soup kitchens they'd get a a, a, a tin of soup with, with a junk of bread, and, and that was really keeping them going actually and, and there was just you know there's just there was no money at all actually there's a certain symmetry going on there in the house where washing is brought in. You need wind to dry the washing and lots of cabbages being eaten. That also kind of ties together somehow, doesn't it? I, 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 I can just imagine. I mean, uh, I mean Bernikovs is very funny. He's always very articulate and good fun, actually. He said he used to walk around all day just farting because they had so many cabbages. Every day it was the same thing. They could, they could not look... For, and the strange thing is his mother, his sister, was married into the Zeta Pools family. They were the uh, football pools family. Mrs. Zeta would... And every few months, Mrs. Zetta would turn up in a Rolls Royce, wind down the window, the, the chauffeur would sound the horn, and she'd hand a tentially note to Mrs. Mrs. Copps, uh, and then, sh- then shoot off again in a Rolls Royce, actually. <laughs> um, let's uh, talk about you a little more, because uh, the, the, the fact that you mentioned right at the beginning uh, is that you're not Jewish yourself, and you're not an East Ender. Have you ever been an East Ender? No, never. No. <laughs> I grew up in South Africa, actually, and... Uh, but I'm, I'm very keen on conservation, actually. And when I discovered the East End, I thought it was a fascinating area. And there were still four surviving synagogues. And they were surviving buildings with Jewish links. There are five cemeteries, very historical cemeteries in this area, Jewish cemeteries, including the oldest Jewish cemetery in England. So, which, is, which is which one? It's the Velo Sephardic, next to Queen Mary University. It goes back to 1657, when the Jews first arrived under Oliver Cromwell. Uh, a lot of these cemeteries are in a very bad state of disrepair. So we bring a lot of pressure to bear. We're trying to save the remaining synagogues, having them listed. Um, and in the building we're in now, of course, the Whitechapel Library, we have events in here to commemorate the, the Jewish literary history of this area. And the, library, the, the, the art gallery uh, uh, directors are very keen that we should go on using this to, to commemorate the Jewish heritage of this building. You're being very modest by not mentioning the fact that it was down to yourself and your organisation and context that this building has been preserved in, its, yes, in this not, state. It's not something I've mentioned quite a lot of, but uh, I'm a member of the Victorian Society as well, and, and I, I notified them about this building. So they, 
they, they, they, they took a keen interest in this. And uh, as you can see, nothing's really been altered in this building. It's, it's, it's grade two listed now. Everything had to remain the same. There were a few alterations were allowed. Um, so the, the White Chapel Art Gallery was able to expand, but without ruining the, the, the external or internal There's certainly wonderful Victorian architecture, the, uh, the arts and crafts architecture. And the library dates from 1894, and the gallery dates from two th- uh, 1901, actually. Uh, but they're both sort of arts and crafts buildings, actually. Very fine buildings, and they, they, they still, yeah, actually. And they can't touch them, really. <laughs> now, the, the, the reason I, I sort of brought the conversation around to yourself is because I know that uh, people who are born and brought up in the East End are very proud and um, I, I almost want to say defensive of their traditions and their, the, the way of life, their history and so forth. I can imagine that any ethnic or religious group would be, of course, proud of its traditions. And I, I just wonder whether you ever meet resistance in either of those areas by being external to, to those. Initially, oh no, certainly, certainly. I've, I've had. I won't mention the man's name. <laughs> when I formed the organisation, I did a guidebook for the area as well. Actually, and this dreadful man phoned me up. He's Jewish from the East End, and he said, uh, why, "Why are you doing this?" He said, "You're not Jewish. You're not from the East End. Mind your own bloody business." Actually, so, uh, but again, that's been very much the minority, and. Uh, he didn't realise that I'm South African born and South Africans tend to interfere in everything actually <laughs> <laughs> and they think they can do everything better than anyone else so, we, so you know I, I think we've done a lot of good work we've, 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 we've saved buildings we've put up a blue plaque to, to Daniel Mendoza uh, uh, at the spot where he was born uh, I'm sorry the spot where he was buried they'd moved his body in the 1970s threw it away in a communal put it in a communal grave in Essex and threw away the gravestone so, so on the spot where he had been buried in the, the Nova Sephardic uh, Cemetery we put up a plaque with, with him in relief um, to commemorate the fact that he'd been buried there. Why, why did they do that? Well, they, the uh, Sephardic uh, community claimed they were short of money and so they sold the cemetery most of the cemetery was sold to Queen Mary University so they had to dig up 7,000 bodies uh, including that of Daniel Mendoza and Benjamin Disraeli, the grandfather of the, of the great Prime Minister, was dug up and they threw away the tombstones and threw the bodies into a communal grave in Essex, actually. So it was just an act of total stupidity and vandalism uh, because he's, you know, he's recognised as one of the greatest British boxers of all time, actually. We should look ahead, I think, at uh, what, the, what the next couple of years perhaps holds for J-E-E-C-S. <laughs> yes, no, certainly, I mean, you know, uh, uh, we're rather short of members of our committee, so we, we are restricted by what we can do, and we're short of money, of course. Uh, but we do have ambitious schemes, actually. Uh, this year is our 10th anniversary of, of our foundation, and we're hoping to have a big event at the Troxy Cinema uh, in the Commercial Road. Uh, we're taking part in, in a big Cockney Festival in, in July. Now, hold on, your eyebrows went all over the place saying Cockney Festival. What's, what's up with the Cockney Festival? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know how you interpret Cockney and that sort of thing. So we're looking around for Jewish Cockneys. Um, does, does it all get a bit hokey? Well, I suppose it does, but again, that's, that's, uh, that's life, really. Uh, but I know I, there are people who recognize those Jewish Cockneys. Um, people like Bud Flanagan, uh, you had Bernard Breslau, you had Elfie uh, uh, Bass. And, you know, and, and amazingly, most of the um, pearly kings and queens are Jewish. They have a strong Jewish tradition in the pearly kings and queens, actually. Because uh, a lot of them were in the clothing industry, and you know they got these little pearl buttons from from working in the clothing industry. So even today, a lot of the pearly kings and queens are Jewish, actually. So so we're doing that for the council, and uh, and 
the next year we're helping to organise the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the Oxford and George's Club, which is a very prominent boys' club in the East End. And uh, that's going to be commemorated in the Troxy Cinema as well. The Troxy Cinema is well, the great centre of entertainment for, for the Jewish community. It's a commercial road. and uh, This magnificent cinema, uh, absolutely magnificent staircase made out of onyx. Uh, it's got marble and faience and... And we're going to have a whole commemoration and people are flying in from all over the world who were at the Oxford St. George's Club. They're coming from Israel, America, Canada, South Africa. And a lot of them in the 80s and 90s, they're flying in. And we're going to have a, have a sort of knees up. I, I suppose this must be a feature then of your work as, as the Jewish population dwindles or has dwindled and continues to do so in the East End. Your, your membership and the people who remember the Jewish East End uh, must be advancing in years. Yes, certainly, uh, certainly. That's the real problem of the synagogues. There are four synagogues left, but their average age of the, of the members is 87, actually. So. Huh. <laughs> One synagogue lost four, four members in a month, actually. They died in, the, in, in their 90s, so that's a problem, actually. But what we're trying to do is, of course, interest the children and grandchildren of, of the people who once lived here to try and rediscover their, 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 their family roots. We have a lot of this people come over from America and Australia, and, and they have addresses and they want to know about it and so we give advice and I take guided tours around and, uh, and, and I see it not only as something for the Jewish community but for the British community I, th- I think the Jewish East End was a very vital part of British history uh, these, these, these very creative people came over and contributed a great deal to, to, to British life they, they weren't a burden on the, on, on, on the, on the British taxpayer they, they, they worked very hard and, and uh, they established themselves um, uh, in, in this amazing way as, as, as an example to other immigrant groups as to how to, how to operate and get things done and there's uh, a magazine of course the cable and what, what's the website finally uh, for people who are interested in uh, perhaps, right, perhaps, perhaps attending or finding out more right certainly we, yes, we've got the cable a magazine which is absolutely outstanding if I may say so myself but <laughs> it's not I'm not the editor we've got an editor who's a former editor of the Financial Times so it's done in a very professional way we have stories by all kinds of people about events in the East End and personalities um, and the website is uk. And we have all series of events, like we're going to an event coming up to, to, to honour the life of Wolf Mankiewicz, another one of these great figures from the East End, who, who was a film director, a writer, playwright, uh, and a world authority on Wedgwood porcelain, actually. So, quite extraordinary. <laughs> well, Clark Bennington, thank you very much. Thank indeed. you very much indeed. Thanks very much. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guest Clive Bettington. Thanks also to Mike Patterson of London Historians and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. See